0: bibles please this evening to the book of nehemiah we're turning to the final chapter uh, chapter 13 matthew just when i was going to congratulate you for not being a baptist and sitting in a different seat tonight uh, you stood up and you weren't listening Uh, (laughs) but uh, i'm sure it happens to the best of us so it does chapter 13 of nehemiah we're turning to and we're thinking about this title contending Against compromise is our title this evening. contending against compromise we 're going to take time to read the full chapter thirteen. I think that 's important uh, it 's quite an easy chapter to read. The story flows quite well, and it 's throughout this book there 's been times where there 's been long lists of names, uh, but in this particular chapter there 's a good storyline to follow, uh, and many lessons for us to pull from at this evening. Chapter thirteen and the verse one. And our title this evening, Contending Against uh, Compromise. Oh. On that day, they read in the book of Moses and the audience of the people, and therein was, and therein was found written uh, that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them, how be it our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law uh, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, that was the high priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied unto Tobiah. Now if you've been following the story of Nehemiah properly, Tobiah was one of these enemies uh, that we find in the earlier chapters of the book. And here's the high priest. The man who is in charge of the oversight of the chamber of the temple. And he has allowed the enemy of God to take up residence in the temple. That's important. Verse 5. And he, that is Eliashib, had prepared for him to buy a great chamber. Where aforetime they had laid the meat offerings and the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of the corn, (laughs) the new wine and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites. And the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. So during this time of compromise, Nehemiah isn't present. And he tells us, for in the two and thirtieth year of the taxershis, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained until I leave of the king. So Nehemiah has been away for a while and he has obtained another grant from king of to come and visit the people for a few days. So here's Nehemiah's second visit to Jerusalem. He arrives and he says, And I came to Jerusalem and understood the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God and it grieved me sore." Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded and they cleansed the chambers and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. You're going to find that Nehemiah in this passage does quite a few things that would shock you. And the first thing he does here is he walks in and he takes Tobiah's stuff. Can you imagine the picture? It's like walking into someone's house and he just casts all of his belongings out and he tells them to go in and cleanse this place. In verse 10, and I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them for the Levites and and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. Then contended I, there's the key word of the night, contended. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set, and I set them in their place, and brought all Judah the tithe of the corn, and the new wine, and the oil unto the treasuries. And I made treasures over the treasuries. Uh, Shemememiah, the priest, and Zadok, the scribe, uh, and of the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mattaniah. And they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto the, uh, unto their brethren. Remember me, O my God. Here's a prayer of Nehemiah. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and uh, ladling asses and uh, as also wine, grapes and figs and all manner of Burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the, on the Sabbath day, and I testified against them in the day therein they sold victuals, and dwelt men of Tyre, there dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold in the Sabbath unto the children of Judah, and in Jerusalem then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, what evil thing is that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Now note that he said in verse seven, that Elisha, allowing Tobiah in was evil. And then note again here in this verse that we have just read, when the Sabbath was not being honored, he says, what evil thing is that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. He's saying, you know what you've done. You know what you've done. Our fathers who were cast out of Jerusalem, they weren't keeping the Sabbath. We've now reestablished, we've rebuilt the walls, and you're doing what your fathers were doing. Do you want history to repeat? And he's furious with them, because the Sabbath is no longer being honored. Verse 19, And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut, and charged that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants said I at the gates, that there should be no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and sellers of all kind of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said, Why lodge ye about the wall? If you do it again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Here's another prayer. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. In those days also I also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab, and their children speak half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And here's our key word, and I contended with them. And cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? And one of the sons of Joeda, jo- the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat. There's the other enemy, the Hornite. So the high priest has one of the enemies living in the temple, and they also are now related to Sambalot, the other enemy. And then it tells us at the end of verse 28 that Nehemiah chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business. And for the wood offering at times appointed, and for the first fruits, remember me, O oh my God, for good. You know, it would have been really nice to have finished the book of Nehemiah at the end of chapter 12. After all, look at the progress that they had made. The holy city was finished, it had been prepared, uh, the people had been prepared. Everything was now sitting in place for the people to continue to serve and love the Lord in the way that it was intended in those days. And of course at the end of chapter 12 and the verse 43 we read how the joy of Jerusalem had been heard afar off. The people's voices had been heard praising God. But the book of Nehemiah sadly doesn't end in chapter 12. It ends in chapter 13. And while this makes for very uncomfortable reading, it serves as a solitary warning for each of us. A warning against complacency and a warning against compromise. In the New Testament, we read in First Corinthians 10 verse 12, Let him who thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. The roots of chapter 13 lie in the promises of chapter 10. When the people made promises that they would obey God's law in various ways. In chapter 10 verse 30 they had said we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land. And not take their daughters for our sons. And yet in chapter 13 we find them doing just that. In chapter 10 verse 31 we find the people making God the promise. And if the people of the land bring where any victuals on the Sabbath day to sale. We would not buy them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And yet by chapter 13, that's exactly what they're doing. And then in verse 37 of chapter 10, they said that we should bring the tithes of our ground onto the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes of all the cities of our tillage. And again, by chapter 13, they're no longer giving. And the Levites aren't supported well enough, so much so that they're all the way back to their fields to work for themselves. And you know the people had made such a good start when the city was finished. Uh, We see that in chapter 12. And all went well for about 12 years. But in Nehemiah's absence. Things deteriorated. They failed to support the Levites. They failed to keep the Sabbath. They failed to maintain separation from the surrounding nations. And they were compromising in all quarters. And each case. Nehemiah was obliged to contend with them. We read that word contend in verse 11 of chapter 13, verse 17, and verse 25. And that's where we get our study title from this evening. We see compromise throughout chapter 13, and yet Nehemiah contended with them. Contending against compromise. Nehemiah, he wasn't afraid. And to put it in in a New Testament way, he earnestly contended for the faith, Jude and verse 3. You know, when we come to Colossians chapter 3, we Get the same teaching from the Apostle Paul in verse 5. He says, Mortify, mortify, therefore, put to death, contend with compromise, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry for which things seek the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, but now ye also Put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, uh, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him, that created him your old nature within you. It's still there, but you're not to feed that nature. You're not to compromise, but you've to feed the new nature. And mentally and spiritually, you have to put that new nature on by faith each day. And Christianity, is, it's a call to obedience. And therefore, it's a call to absolute holiness before God. It's a call to have convictions. I wonder, dear brother, dear sister, do you have convictions <laughs> tonight? Something that we struggle with with times. You know, even holiness, when we talk about it, we, we don't believe we, we don't believe that we can achieve absolute holy perfection down here on earth. We don't. But yet it's something that we ought to strive towards. There's no doubt about this. That's, that's New Testament teaching. Matthew five forty eight in the Sermon of the Mount, the Lord Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven, is perfect. The Old Testament saints were told, be holy, even as I, the Lord, am holy. Romans 12, verse 1. Here's a New Testament text again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So the cry of the New Testament after the gospel, which is repent and believe the gospel, the cry of the New Testament to the child of God is obedience At all costs. Cut out sin. Don't compromise your faith. Contend against compromise. Get to know the Lord. And get studying God's word. And make sure that you have deep held convictions. So that when someone comes and challenges you. In the way that you live. That you know exactly why you live in that way. And Nehemiah. He was a man of deep conviction. The people The rest of the people had made fine promises in chapter 10, but they failed to deliver. Why? Because I believe they weren't convicted. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters tonight, you and I are equally vulnerable. We fall and we fail. I feel the Lord all the time. But listen, this is important. Failure, failure does not excuse us. From further commitment to God. Failure should lead us to seek his help with even greater determination. Now let me reiterate this because this is important. Because there's too many Christians, especially my own generation and younger today, who just float around and have no convictions. As long as you're saved, it doesn't matter.
1: As long as you're
0: kind of trying to live for God, it doesn't matter. There's no convictions anymore. Uh, there, there's nothing that's held that, that, that really makes them want to live for Christ and know what they believe. Uh, and, and even the things that we do, we just do it because, well, that's how my church does it. So I think that's right. We need to get into scripture and know why we do what we do. And Nehemiah's strong convictions, uh, they, they held the people. But they failed to share his convictions. And when he was absent, the spiritual standard slipped. You see, it's not sufficient just for men of the assembly who are in leadership to have convictions. Each one of us individually, as men and women, need to have convictions knowing what we believe. Why we believe it, knowing what we do, and why we do it before the Lord. Nehemiah left Jerusalem with everything in good order and returned to find complete disorder. You know, it would be tragic today if the Lord Jesus returned to find us being unfaithful to his word. Do you remember that verse in Second Corinthians 5 verse 10? That we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that which he hath done. Whether it be good or bad. That's the bema. That's the seat that you and I will stand before one day. And in this chapter 13. We find out how Nehemiah brings things back into order. However we know that after Nehemiah left again. That it didn't last. Even after chapter 13 when we close the book tonight. We know what didn't last. Because we actually considered Malachi last March. Hard to believe it's nearly a year ago. And Malachi calls out the people of Israel. And he calls out the Levites. And he calls them out for robbing God. The people after Nehemiah left again just went back to the way they are. Because they didn't have convictions. That's why it's so important to have convictions. Now I want you to see how this decline happened. what we're going to do, there's there's really four things in this passage that we'll deal with, and one of them I'm going to leave tonight because I want to deal with it when some of the younger ones are maybe out on a Sunday, and it's to do with intermarriage and being unequally yoked. And I'm going to leave that tonight. I'll just make a comment on it, and we'll move on. But let me make it clear, just because we're not touching on that. If you're a single person and you come to me, and you're a safe person, And you're hoping to get married and that I'll marry you to an unsaved person. Don't come to me. Don't come to me because I won't do it. Because in scripture it teaches us that we're to marry those who are saved and of the faith. And you can see in the intermarriage here it completely messed up the people. They started to worship their gods and they start to speak their language. And it doesn't work. I will only be involved... In a Christian marrying a Christian. Of course if two unsaved people came to me. I would do that also. But I will not be involved in the marriage of a Christian. And a non-Christian. Scripture is very clear on it. Unequally yoked. But that's enough said in that. But I want you to see firstly. Number one. I want you to see their failure. To recognise the sanctity of the temple of God. I want you to see the failure to recognise the sanctity of the temple of god you see the problem for us is especially in the age that we live that we're soft on sin the government is soft on sin the church is soft on sin and when you get hard on sin people cry out legalism or aggressiveness and we as individual christians if we're honest with ourselves we have to admit that we come to a place in our lives when we often compromise with sin sins that we feel are just little sins and we allow them in Marcus Dodd said that we as Christians, instead of putting to death sin, we deal with sin as a man would disarm his son. We we don't kill it, we just want to disarm it. We want to treat sin like a family member or an old friend, and when it knocks on the door, we'll allow it to lodge for a little while. And that's exactly what had happened in chapter 13. The great enemy of God, the great enemy of God's people, Tobias, was actually given this lodging chamber in the house of God, in the temple of God. Verse 4, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied unto Tobiah, and he had prepared for him a great chamber. And here was the former enemy of God, now given a little place in the temple. The enemy, who had been there before, now has a little room. And some will say, well now come on, It's just a little room. Aren't we getting a bit legalistic here? Well, let me tell you that that one little room, it belonged to God. It belonged to God. And there in the temple, here are the things that were meant to be in that little room that Tobiah was in. Verse 5. Where aforetime they laid the meat offerings. Who was that for? God. The frankincense, who is that for God? And the vessels and the ties of corn, the new wine and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offering of the priests. That room belonged to God. And yet the high priest, the man who oversaw all that went on the temple, says, no problem, you come on in. You have that wee room, it's all for you. That's what we're like with sin sometimes. We give it a little room. Not all of our lives, but... A little space. But that little space will have sway in your life. And instead of decapitating sin, we let it fester and we let it tempt us. You know what it's like when you go on your holidays in the summer for a fortnight. And when you come back and you've left the garden, all of a sudden it's like a jungle. And the weeds have grown everywhere and there's a lot of work to do and there's the onerous task to go and take all these weeds out and to to sort the garden out. Well that's essentially the picture of what Nehemiah is doing with the children of Israel tonight. He's going and he's weeding the garden. I want you to see how Nehemiah dealt with Tobiah. He he says, he he casts them out. He throws all his his things out and he calls this evil. And he's broken hearted. Verse 8. He was grieved about the situation. He didn't shrug his shoulders the way some Christians do today and say, well, it's not a hill to die on, is it? He threw Tobiah out. Nehemiah brought in again what was meant to be there. And maybe the weeds of compromise have been growing in your life. And maybe you have given Tobiah a wee room in your life. That wee sin that you've let in. And you haven't put it to death. Maybe tonight before the Lord. Is the night that you need to confess it. And let the Lord have that wee room back. This small compromise. It led to other declines in Jerusalem. While Nehemiah was away. Because not only was there failure to recognize. The sanctity of the temple of God. But secondly there was failure to recognize. The needs of God's servants. Now we've looked at giving. Uh, giving to the work of the Lord recently, so this will be brief. But in verses ten to thirteen, we see that the Levites and the singers were not being paid what they should have been paid, and they were being fe- they, they were meant to be fed by temple offerings. But we don't know why. Perhaps Tobiah was eating some of it. But we read that they had to go back to their fields and to their farms and actually work for their own supply. I'm assuming Tobiah was probably eating some of it, and the people had stopped giving themselves. So so these ones who are meant to be serving the temple, they've ran out of resources, they've no choice but to go back to their fields and work for themselves. So they leave this job serving the Lord, they're on the farm, and it's very interesting in passing to see what Nehemiah says in verse 10. He says, and I perceived, other versions say I discovered. And as we go through the passage, we see that Nehemiah occasionally says, I saw, I looked, I saw. This tells me something about Nehemiah's leadership. And if you're in leadership of any of the works in this church, or if you're an oversight, or if you're a deacon, this is an important skill to have. He was looking. And he was vigilant. And he had his eyes peeled. And he was looking for sin in God's people. But he wasn't looking necessarily for the opportunity to criticize, but to encourage what was good. But he dealt with what was bad. He built the people up who were living in the right way. And he dealt with the people who were living in the wrong way. He didn't criticise what people were doing. He just cast them out. I wonder, are you looking in your Christian life individually? Charles Swindle says a leader keeps his eyes open. All Christians should keep their eyes open, whether in leadership or not. They should listen. They should watch. Charles Swindle goes on to say, most wise parents I know are always looking at and listening what their kids are doing. They listen carefully to the music that comes from each room. And they find out what's going on behind any door that stays closed. Now, what was the issue here? The people had stopped giving. And when God's people start to decline spiritually, one of the first things that goes is their giving. And the believer who is happy in the Lord is walking in his will and has a generous heart. Warren Wearsby says this. Giving is both the thermostat and the thermometer of the Christian life. It measures our spiritual temperature and also helps us set it at the right level. Someone asked the American Bishop Philip Brooks what he would do to resurrect a dead church. And he replied he would take up a missionary offering. Giving to others is one of the secrets of staying alive. And fresh in the Christian life. You see, here's the thing: if all we do is receive, then we become reservoirs, and the water becomes stale, and it becomes polluted. But if we receive and give, we become more like channels, and it's a ble- and, and in blessing others, we bless ourselves. I find it interesting that a psychiatrist, not a Christian. But a psychiatrist called Dr. Carl Menninger once said, money giving is a good criterion of a person's mental health. Generous people are rarely mentally ill people. You see, the world is full of two kinds of people. The givers and the takers. The takers eat well, but the givers sleep well. Now, as I said, we've spoken on giving recently, so we won't go into the New Testament end of things. But before we move on, I want you to notice Nehemiah's prayer here at the end of this section in verse 14. And he says, remember me, O my God, concerning this and wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Nehemiah was in the habit of talking to God as he served. And this is another one of those short prayers that we find. And no matter what Nehemiah was doing, you find him praying. And as we leave the book of Nehemiah tonight, if you remember anything about Nehemiah, you remember that as he did a great thing for God, he did it on on his knees. And here in this prayer, he reminded God of his faithfulness and prayed that what he had done for Jerusalem wouldn't be blotted out. The people failed to recognize the sanctity of the temple of God. They failed to recognize the needs of God's servants. But finally this evening, what we're going to consider is the failure to recognize the blessing of Sabbath rest. We see in this in these verses from fifteen through to twenty-two that the Sabbath sanctity had to be restored. They had profaned and secularized God's day, and now the Sabbath was not only in the Sabbath, it wasn't only in God's law for these people, but it was part of the covenant in chapter ten that they had signed to themselves to say that they were going to keep. Because there in verse 31, we read it earlier, the people said, if the people of the land bring wear and victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, we're not going to buy them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And that we might leave and we're going to leave the seventh year and the exaction of that every debt. They had signed to this. They'd agreed to it. Not only that, but it was God's law. One writer has described them in this fault like this. They said they were people who could hear a bargain from a mile away, but who were tone deaf to God's commands concerning the Sabbath. And I wonder, is that what we're like in these days? We can hear a bargain from a mile away, but we don't tune in to God's word. Well, Nehemiah hadn't forgotten God's law, and he hadn't forgotten the covenant that the people had signed. And in verses 17 to 22, we see Nehemiah taking obedience into his own hands. He made sure that the people were out of Jerusalem and the gates were locked at sundown on Friday night. You see, when the sun set on Friday night, that was the beginning of the Sabbath. And the gates were shut until Saturday night after the Sabbath. And then he found out that these there were these traveling traders and they were now shut out, out of the city. So did they go away? No. They came and they stood outside the city. And Nehemiah just essentially, he walks up to them and he says, if you don't, if you don't leave, I'm going to deal with you. Put you in prison. Send out men to take you away. If you don't move, you'll be thrown into jail. And off they went. And Nehemiah, he was ruthless. And he he was violent in his obedience to God's word. It mattered so much to him. Let me say this, that the Lord's day in these days is Sunday. And it's not the same as the Jewish Sabbath, as we understand it in the Old Testament. But we do understand, as we read through the New Testament scriptures, that God's people set aside the Lord's day. It was the first day of the week. And it was set aside to glorify him, to worship him, to praise him, to come around and meet around God's word. And in our culture today, some people are required to work. It's a necessity on the Lord's day. But we have to declare that in an age of compromise that it's better by far for workers and for the nation if God's people are allowed to honour God's day. We're living in a day that the nation doesn't honour. We're living in a day that even God's people don't honour. it. Can I be more specific? A Christian should not use Sunday as a day to go for the shopping. It shouldn't be a day that's used to earn money. It's, it's, it's a day where certain things can wait till Monday. Whether it be working or whether it be playing. It's not God's law. But it's the principle of worshipping God with the Lord's people on the Lord's day to glorify him that is taught in the New Testament. It's a principle. And we can take the principles from the Sabbath day in the Old Testament and apply them to the Lord's day, the first day of the week. Leaders of this church, we're meant to be an example. In verse 22, we find that the Levites were failing and keeping the Sabbath day and they were the ones who had to start it all over again and set the example. Now, we don't want to get into the situation of sabbatarian rules do's and don'ts of the sabbath day you've got to meet out that thing in your life under these principles in your own way and with your own conscience but Sunday ought to be a special day in the heart of the child of God it ought to be a day that's set aside not to be an opportunity for getting double time at work now Nehemiah finishes this book with two prayers one in verse 29 and one in verse 31, uh, that God would remember his faithful service. He's been a faithful servant, hasn't he? From chapter 1 right through to chapter 13, there was no compromise. Here was a man who was convicted. Here was a man who was wise. And here was a man who was always found in his knees. And he did everything for the good of God's people and for the glory of God. That was Nehemiah's motivation. You know, there was probably little appreciation from the people, despite all his sacrifices. But he knew that God would reward him accordingly. What seemed an impossible task, the walls of Jerusalem destroyed. People saying, You'll never do it. And with God's help, Jerusalem restored. And the people back worshipping God the way they ought to. We do leave them in a good note. Chapter 13, while it can be discouraging, Nehemiah gets them back in order again. Sometimes we all need that, don't we? But what an amazing book it was. Depending on the Lord to rebuild the walls. The people returning to proper worship. Nehemiah called of God, dependent in prayer. He had a God-given vision. He had submitted. He submitted to the authority of the Heavenly Father. He had a strategy. He fought the enemy with God's help. He worked hard. He lived an exemplary life. He sought to glorify God alone. He was courageous in his work for God. He encouraged others and equipped others to serve the Lord. I feel it's safe to say we need more Nehemiah in our day. God willing, Next week I'll do a one-off study and then my plan is to begin to consider the tabernacle in Wednesday evenings going forward and also as a connecting little series to that that will tag in at the end we'll look at the high priestly garments and um, don't think that it's not a practical series I promise you it won't be heavy theology it will be as practical as I can possibly make it. We'll apply the tabernacle to our lives and what it means to each of us and how we live each day. And so many preachers sometimes come to the tabernacle and bore you with theology. I don't mean bore, but sometimes you can fall asleep because it's too heavy. So please, I encourage you to come along to those studies and we'll make them as practical as possible as we go into this next little series. And we will tr- entrust that to the Lord's will uh, going forward on Wednesday evenings. Let's pray together now that we've finished this particular book. (coughs) Our God and our Father, we bow in thy most holy presence again this evening. And we thank you, Father, that again we have spent time studying your word and Father, as we consider chapter 13 of Nehemiah, we we see ourselves there, if if we're honest. We compromise so easily, and we are so soft at times, and we give in to the inner man so much. But Father, we thank you that you're the God who is so faithful in forgiving us, and we thank you, Father, that as your children, that You love us unconditionally, even when we feel you. And Father, we just pray that you would help us to look at this amazing example of Nehemiah. And we see his deep-held convictions, and we see how he was a man who fully leaned upon his God. That he didn't just go and lead and do things off his own bad, but Father, he was on his knees and he was seeking your will and he was leading the people and father we pray that you would help us to be men and women of conviction that father we would indeed contend with compromise that we would be people who are striving to live holy lives with the help of our God help us to put on the new man each day help us to put on the armor of God each day that we'll stand against the, can stand against the wiles of the devil. Father, we realize that we are in a spiritual we're in spiritual warfare each day. And Father, the devil would seek to have our minds, and he would seek to have our hearts. But Father, we pray that you would help us. That Father, we pray indeed that you would protect us. And that Father, we would be those who are found in that spiritual battle fighting it with God by our side. Father, as we come to our time of prayer, we ask that you would bless us this evening. We ask, O God, that we would know your presence as we pray. And we ask, Father, that indeed uh, we would know answer to prayer in the coming weeks and that we would be careful to give you all the honour and glory and praise. Father, we pray this in the precious name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.